This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Well, it's always a treat to talk to our next guest from over at uh, KDVR Fox 30. Who is not in his golden years. Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Or, or, or at least uh, you know, just, just entering his prime. Our friend Aaron Anderson from Fox 31. You can follow him on social at Aaron Anderson. That's A-R-R-A-N and Anderson with an S-E-N. Maybe I'm too sensitive, but I think that's a reference to my... Oh, Danny's not. A few minutes ago, golden years. I'm in my golden years. Man. Forgetful as ever. Your producer's not throwing any shade he's on you. Come on. Shade. No, he's not. No, he's not. Oh. It may become clear why I picked that song later on in this segment. Aha. Okay. See, he's got a plan. He's got a plan. He's always got a plan. Aaron, obviously for the Broncos, uh, it's been a while since we have had an opportunity to cover a December in which games actually matter for playoff positioning. Here they are with uh, a, an important game against the Rams. It is less critical. Look, all the wins are important this late. But it is the one NFC game left on the schedule. For tiebreaker purposes, something the Broncos do need to be cognizant of. This one doesn't matter. But it feels like they might be catching the Lions at the right time. The Lions have looked a little bit wobbly. The Broncos seem to be playing pretty consistent football for the most part. Uh, How do you look at this bearing out? And what are the primary concerns that you have for the Broncos coming up on Saturday? Well, first off, gosh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's always fun to chat with you, and uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's wonderful that we have a chance to talk about meaningful games halfway through the month of December. Keep in mind, however, back in 2021, Vic Fangio had a 7-6 and six football team that ended up losing its last four. So we've, we've been here recently, but yeah, yeah, I agree with you guys. I, I feel You're like right. this is a much different scenario. I, I, I didn't have a good feeling about that 7-6 and six then but you know what you have a point because they were playing cincinnati which i believe mm-hmm. had the same record at the time and uh one of those two teams ended up going to the super bowl and as best <laughs> as i can recall it wasn't denver <laughs> no denver ended up looking for a new head coach and we know that's how that exactly out. right yeah and but no i did not work John out well. mentioned as sean mentioned yeah they're geez they're catching detroit at the right time this is a team that at one point had won 16 of 20 games, including knocking off the defending champions on opening night at Arrowhead. But lately, with Jared Goff turning the ball over, five interceptions and three fumbles over the last four games, this this is a team that that certainly feels ripe for the picking. And a Broncos defense that you know has shown the ability to turn the ball over. Um, and you know, I think what scares me about this game is the fact that the Lions have the ability to run the football and. You know, that's that's one of the concerns I have with this Broncos defense. We know they're ball hawks. However, I think we, we've seen them give up yardage in big chunks uh, in games recently. And, you know, my fear would be that, that that is maybe what would determine this game. But, look, the Bears' game plan last week was to force Garrett, uh, Jared Goff to beat them on third down, and he simply couldn't do it. So, you know, if, if there is a blueprint – to beat the Lions, it would be, yeah, to sit back and allow them to, to get foolish with the football and force Jared Goff to be the guy who beats you. Well, yes, uh, and the way to keep uh, Jared Goff from beating you is to uh, have somebody in his face or even mm-hmm. several somebodies in his face because out of a clean pocket, he's terrific. Uh, out of a pocket that's loaded with pass rushers, uh, not so terrific, and we talked about some of those trends yesterday. And uh, you 
must have been listening earlier. Uh, or great minds think alike. Yeah, you guys we are making the same, the same point. You two did about yep. how even during this seven-game stretch in which the Broncos have gone six and one, forty point six percent of opponents' rushes have gone for at least five yards. That ranks 29th out of 32 teams in the NFL during this stretch. The Lions, during this same span of time, are number two in the NFL at 5.3 yards per carry on the ground. And that gap, Lions second at 5.3 yards and Broncos 29th and allowing almost 41% of opponents' rushes to go for five yards or more. Uh, that's a troubling gap from the Bronco point of view, just as it would be concerning for the Lions to see that the Broncos had six sacks last week when against the Bears they couldn't really protect Jared Goff very well, yeah. nor since week seven have they protected Jared Goff uh, very well, and the offensive line has been banged up. Maybe it'll be a little healthier uh, on Saturday night. Maybe it won't be, but both teams have things they do that could bother the other yeah no indeed i I don't know if it's you know the unstoppable force versus the you know immovable object (laughs) maybe not quite that strong yeah (laughs) but obviously the the game is going to be one up front and you know offensively speaking gosh which game isn't one up front guys if we really think about it but offensively speaking i think the broncos are going to have their chances to, to make some big plays the question is Who's going to step up? Because it can't just be Cortland Sutton. And I know there's so much venom and vitriol uh, aimed at Jerry Judy for drop passes and uh, missing toe taps and that sort of thing. But, you know, at some point, they're going to need to get a return from him, whether it be, you know, uh, catching, you know, seven, eight passes in a game and really affecting the outcome of it. Or, gosh, with the potential of um, Dulcich coming back at tight end, you know, there may be another weapon for. Uh, Russell Wilson to go to. But I, I just think that, you know, this Cortland Sutton show, and granted, it's been great. I mean, some of the catches he's made are, are going to be on his highlight reel when it's all said and done, for sure. There needs to be somebody offensively besides him that steps up down the field because I, I feel like the, the middle is going to be open. And uh, the bottom line is, I think the Broncos are going to have to make some big plays to win this game on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, obviously with with Jerry Judy, it does feel like he's the guy that's got to step up. Dulcich, uh, uh, as we've mentioned earlier in the program, you know, returning to practice, he won't be playing on Saturday in this game, and uh, that that's one of the other weapons you won't have. So uh, Troutman, I think, has done a good job stepping up. Uh, Sean Payton likes mm-hmm. what Lucas Krull has done, but you're not mounting a major attack. It's, it's not Sam Laporta and Jared Goff uh, <laughs> on the other side with the tight end combo there. So yeah, it no. feels like it has to be Jerry Judy, and to me, this feels... This feels like a and I'm really not exaggerating. This feels like a career-defining game for Jerry Judy. Two weeks ago, Sean Payton kind of backed the bus over Russell Wilson, indicating that Jerry Judy was open all day and Wilson kept missing him. Wilson focused yeah. on getting Judy the ball. He had the most targets on the team last week, more than Sutton. Two catches, and of course, we know about the drop near the sideline, and we know about the failed toe tap. This is a team that's trying to make the playoffs. Everyone on the planet knows that he was basically served up with an opportunity to have a good game on a silver platter last week, and he fumbled it. This, to me, feels like if Jerry Judy is going to ever become a wide receiver of any significance in the NFL, you show up Saturday or it's not going to happen. 
I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I, we've, we've waited for just about four years for see him to see Jerry Judy. I mean, we assume, right, Aaron, he's, we're going to get his best after that performance, right? I mean, this is even Jerry Judy's got to go, hey, after that game, I have to show them what I'm made of. You certainly would hope so. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how many times you can keep going back to, to Jerry Judy, but, you know, as you alluded, who else is there? And, you know, the bottom line is, He's coming back next year via this uh, the, the the fifth year extension that, that they signed him to. I I know Sean Payton has confidence in Jerry Judy. Otherwise, he wouldn't make him such a focal point of the offense. The, the question is going to be if if Judy continues to drop the ball, pun intended. Yeah, you know, at some point you're going to have to move on from him. Um, but but this week I would I would guarantee you're going to see as many targets if not more. They have got to get him going. I don't know if it's it's, you know, little short dump passes early on just to give him confidence. Whatever it is, he needs to step up. And, you know, these are the games where, you know, you've got to have your, 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 your big-time players respond and make plays. And, you know, Cortland Sutton certainly has been a guy who's, who's shown the ability to, to go up and, 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 you know, win a jump ball. Uh, Jerry Judy, it, it seems to me that every time – you know he's involved in a play. There's some sort of level of difficulty that he's got to he's got to add to the mix. You know it it doesn't seem like anything comes easy for him. And uh, this week he has got to respond for this team to win. I, I really believe he's got to have a good game. I agree with both of you that uh, Peyton most assuredly put the focus last week on getting the ball to Jerry Judy. At the same time, little Jordan Humphrey played as many snaps as Jerry mm. Judy played in Los Angeles on Sunday. And that indicates to me that, at the very least, the quarterback trusts Humphrey in a way maybe that he doesn't trust Judy. And the Broncos, uh, at least in some measure, are trying to accommodate Russell Wilson's preferences. And you know, Jerry Judy's out there for 57% of the snaps. I know he got targeted six times. But that's not even six out of every ten snaps that he's on on the field. So they're encouraging him, they're backing him, but they're also in the games. They're facing the reality that he isn't among the more trusted targets in the mind of uh, Russell Wilson at the very least. I wanted to ask you about somebody else who who was out there a little more, sixty percent of the snaps. And I thought he played well, but the numbers still, by the end of the game, had him averaging less than four yards per carry. And that's uh, Javante Williams, uh, of whom I, I, I am a big fan. But at the same time, I look at what P. Ryan has done. And to me, P. Ryan should be playing more than 21% of the snaps. And I'm not sure with Javante Williams if the game on Sunday in Los Angeles is about as well as he's capable of playing and the final numbers are 17 carries for 66 yards. That's a very good point. And I, I hate to go back to the injury that, that he's overcome and he's battled back from, but there's a part of me that has wondered over the last couple of weeks if, if he may have hit a wall, if, if we've seen him start to tire a little bit. But – you know, as far as what Piran brings to the table, I, I just feel like he's such a versatile guy. And yeah. Sean Payton, 
has had guys like that, whether it be Kamara or Sproles. He's found guys who have different ways at running back uh, to affect the game. And, you know, the, the fact that he has a guy who has those abilities to catch the ball out of the backfield, to run with the football, and he's made big plays in, in really key situations uh, during the fourth quarter of, of several of the games during this uh, winning streak that the Broncos have been on, six wins in seven games. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks that you know, maybe Sean Payton is deferring uh, to P. Ryan late because he just knows that there's more that he brings to the table than Javante. Javante's a banger. Um, certainly love to run him between the tackles. He's a guy who, who's rarely knocked down by the first defender. You know, he's, he's a guy who's going to bounce off you and pick up added yardage. But P. Ryan seems to me that in the third and fourth quarter, he just brings another dimension. And maybe that's part of the reason that we've seen kind of a decline in, in uh, Williams' numbers uh, as this season has progressed. We're talking with our friend Aaron Anderson from Fox 31. And Aaron, uh, you've actually been paying a, a lot of attention to the proceedings up in Golden, where the Colorado School of Mines are in their second consecutive national championship game, this time uh, as the favorite against number two Harding, Harding out of Searcy, uh, Arkansas. But uh, we're talking about mm-hmm. some teams that can get it done on the ground. Harding broke the Division two record this year uh, for rushing in a season. They are averaging over, I'm not joking, 400 yards a game on the ground, and they're still the number two seed. Mines is number one. Uh, if you like the old, the old, the old turn, the old slobber knockers, this might be your game. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm really excited because what you have is two distinctly different kinds of offenses. Mines has a a spread offense, however, they yeah. do have the ability to run the football. Oh, sure. while Harding, sure Harding has that. It's like a souped up triple option. In, in 14 games, they've thrown the football a total of 54 times. Yet these two teams, in terms of, in terms of scoring, rank number two and number three nationally. Yeah. So I guess it, it goes to show you that there's more than one way to win a football game, right? Um, I think the well, if you're rushing for over 400 yards, you probably can score a few points with that many <laughs> yards on the ground. I mean, that's Certainly. as good as passing. Oh, absolutely it is. Um, you know, and the defenses are, are, in terms of scoring defenses, rank right up there, yep. uh, two and three in the top mm-hmm. five nationally. So, yeah, th- this is going to be a knockdown, drag them out game. And, you know, I- I've had a chance to, to um, talk with Pete Sturbeck and-, and John Matoka. And, you know, the one thing that they mentioned when we-, we chatted with them this week was experience at this stage is a big deal. Last year, mine's. Uh, played Ferris State, and, and they admitted that they were wide-eyed because they yeah. didn't really realize what the week entailed. You know, today I saw on Twitter that as Mines walked out to the practice field, there were cheerleaders from surrounding high schools there in Texas that were cheering them on. I mean, there's dinners, there's all these things going on That's great. Uh, leading up That's to the game. And, and and so uh, Coach Sturbeck said, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're certainly better suited for this game, having been through this recently, where the, the players know exactly what's expected, and you don't kind of get lost in the shuffle with distractions. However, you know, th- this is a, a Harding team that, boy, you talk about the numbers they pile up on the ground. It reminds me certainly a lot of Air Force. You know, folks here yeah. have, have seen a lot of Troy Calhoun's group where, you know, th- if they're able to dictate tempo, if they're able to, to control the clock, um, you're in trouble. And, you know, as we've seen, Time and time again, the age-old adage holds true, which is defense wins championships. 
the onus is going to be on the ore diggers defense to slow down this rushing attack. Because if not, you know, playing catch up to a team like that who can really grind it out on the ground uh, proves to be problematic. We have to say, and, and you're far ahead of most people in terms of the coverage you've uh, uh, done regarding mines, uh, but there isn't a better entertainment product in this area, a bang for the buck, so to speak, than Colorado School of Mines has been in recent years. Yeah, I, I would absolutely echo that. And, you know, we, we've kind of lost sight of what a student athlete is. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all, all these kids, there's never going to be a kid at Mines who falls out, right, who, who fails to graduate. These kids are guaranteed six-figure contracts the minute they walk the stage and, and get their diploma. You know, football is a bonus for these guys. But, boy, when you go out to practice, when you go out to these games, first of all, uh, the setting in Golden is spectacular. Marquez Stadium it stands it's alone. It's tremendous. But the passion these kids play with uh, is, is something else. And, and John Matoka, who is the Harlan Hill Award winner from last year and a favorite to win it again this year, right. Division II's version of the Heisman, he reminds me a lot of Nikola Jokic in a sense that <laughs> he's a, a reluctant superstar. You know, he, every time you talk to him, he literally will not talk about himself. Like, a couple weeks ago, when he, when he broke the college football's all-time scoring record, that was my challenge. And, and you know, as I went out there, I talked to Tim Flynn, the, the media relations director at Mines, and I said, how the heck can I get this kid to talk about himself? He just set this record. And so, you know, every time you speak with him, he, he, he's just so humble and, and you know, praises the, the, the offensive line. He praises the equipment manager. He can't praise enough people. And, you know, all of these kids have that, um, dimension to them. They, they understand that playing football at Mines is a privilege. They're, they're excited to be part of this great tradition, and uh, every one of those kids is hoping to bring the first national championship back to Golden. Yeah, you heard Arn Wright, by the way, uh, Matoka with 161 passing yards, uh, passing touchdowns in his career, pardon me, is the most in college football history. Not D2, college football history. Add 28 yep. rushing touchdowns to that, that's 189. That's the most in college football history and to talk about the student uh, athlete part he's a redshirt senior because he's finishing not his bachelor's but his master's in computer science so i mean a, a legendary career for colorado athlete uh, in matoka's case the, the uh, championship will be played in mckinney texas uh, mckinney texas this weekend matoka from magnolia texas so getting to go back to the home state and maybe go yep. ahead and win that first title so we'll pay attention to that as well a lot of good football Happening on Saturday, you'll want to pay attention to everything that uh, Aaron and the team over at Fox 31 are doing there as well. Make sure you give them a follow on social. Aaron Anderson, uh, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Sandy, Sean, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. And, again, let's let's enjoy the festivities. This should be a lot of fun on Saturday. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, Aaron day Anderson. Yeah, Saturday. Huge we bowl day. games. we got mines for the championship of Division Two. we got the Broncos at night. Yeah. It, it's still it's still baffling to me when you look at a guy like John Matoka and and, and if they were to win the championship, great kid, be the second year in a row they got to the championship. They lost last year. It would you would be hard pressed to find a half dozen amateur athletes in Colorado history that would have had a more significant collegiate I career agree. than Matoka in any sport. I heard him speak at the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and Aaron's exactly right. The last person he ever thinks about is himself. 
be fun to watch. We'll see if that goes along uh, well for Mines. And, of course, the Broncos are on Saturday. We'll get back to them. But the Denver Nuggets uh, have a game tonight. The Brooklyn Nets come to town this evening. Uh, will Nikola Jokic make it through the game? Will Nikola Jokic make it through the game because he doesn't have to tell someone to call the foul? Bleeping as if he was Samuel L. Jackson. Well, we'll talk about it next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. The Denver Nuggets will take on the Brooklyn Nets tonight, 7 p.m. tip out down at Ball Arena, and they will have Nikola Jokic back in the fold after being ejected. But uh, you look at the, the situation here with the free throws, right, per game. And you look at Joel Embiid with uh, 11.6 per game, Giannis and Tita Kubo with 11.3 per game. That went up after last night when uh, Giannis became the first player in the history of the NBA to have had more than 30 free throw attempts in the game, in a game, and have more than the entire opposing team. When he had 32 free throw attempts last night, he had 24 of those on his way to 64 points. And a little bit of drama with the game ball, which actually earlier went to one of the Pacers rookies, Oscar Chibwe, who scored his first uh, NBA <laughs> points. But um, I, I heard something last night that I wasn't aware of. Rick Carlisle, the Indiana coach, and talking about the dispute afterwards and saying it was unfortunate that it had to escalate to that point. So there are two game balls. We could have shared them. We didn't care which one. Yeah. The guy, he could have had the one he wanted. I don't think uh, I don't think Chibwe would have cared that much either. I don't think but, uh, would care a bit. It, it's it's what it is. And so when you look at the folks getting, you know, that are the most attempts per game, for example, the most uh, shot attempts per game, Nikola Jokic is ninth in the league, averaging 19.8 yeah, shots sure. per game. When you look at free throw attempts per game, though, uh, you've got to go a long way down the list, all the way to 21 for Jokic getting barely over six free throw attempts a game. Over at ESPN, the man who submarined Jokic's third consecutive MVP award, Kendrick Perkins, by inserting race into the conversation, actually had a discussion about Jokic's bad whistle. And I'm tired of the, the, the Jokic disrespect from the officials, okay? This guy is the best player in the NBA, okay? A finals MVP, won the championship last year, and has never cheated the game of basketball, right? He's always, he's reliable, available. He puts up his numbers. He wins games. And and so when I think about all the other players across the league, the superstars, right? And what they're, what they get away with when it comes down to having conversations with officials, that's what we're going to call it, right? Speaking their mind, because it's the emotional game. The, the tolerance that officials have for other superstar players, they don't seem to keep that same energy when it comes to Jokic, and that's not fair. Do you get the impression, and look, I get it, the reality is you're supposed to call the game the way it's called, but 
Star calls have been part of the NBA since the beginning of time. Do you get the impression that Jokic is getting a bad whistle? Because when you look at the two guys that lead it by far, and you're talking about Giannis and Embiid, Giannis has almost 30 more attempts than Embiid, but the third player in free throw attempts on the year is his teammate, Damian Lillard. He's number three in the league with 186 attempts. Giannis has almost 80 more free throw attempts in 23 games than the third highest free throw getter in the league. And for Jokic, who's down on that list, 14th when you're talking about the total overall because the game total is different. Do you get the impression that Jokic is getting a bad, uh, an unfair shake? I'm not sure that he's getting an unfair shake, but the point that Perkins made at the end resonates with me. There may have been a publicly declared example of a player being thrown out of a game for one technical foul that I've forgotten about or that I missed. And that technical foul was the use of a profanity. Right. That's that was the technical foul. He deserved the technical. Mm -hmm. He said he deserved the technical. How one technical turned into immediate ejection and the official in question was questioned himself after the game repeatedly on this point and never wavered in saying he was thrown out on the basis of one technical foul because of the severity of the language used. I've never heard of that. Much less have an official make a public declaration that I ejected this player on the basis of one technical foul. I didn't went around for the second. The first one was so bad I threw him for excessively profane language. I, I can't remember the exact phrasing he used, but that was it. And it's why it was so puzzling to Reggie Jackson, who asked the officials about it, Michael Malone and his staff, who asked the officials about it and were exasperated because presumably they had never heard of a player after one technical foul being thrown out of a basketball game. And Perkins' point at the end that officials, even though Jokic has been much better with officials for well over a year now, maybe even closer to two years, much less inclined to complain. I I know it was true last year. He wasn't ejected from any games last year that I can remember. He's already been ejected from two. And unless you're Draymond Green, you don't get, get ejected more than twice at this time of year. And he got ejected twice within a span of three weeks. So my point is, I don't know about the free throws. He might deserve one or two more a game than he gets. Uh, I think part of his problem is he makes so many shots when he's getting fouled. And I've talked about this on the air for at least five years. And it has never been explained to me why this is the case, although it has been acknowledged that it is. And it seems to be something that is much more prevalent in the NBA than it is in college basketball, although I've seen it in college basketball. 
Shots are taken. If they go in, no whistle. If they miss, you're going to the foul line for two. It happens in the NBA all the time. And and to stars and to non-stars. Yes. You wait to see. They call it a late whistle. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. What a late whistle is comes down basically to the idea that the official waits to see whether the shot is good or not. Now, to my way of thinking, whether the shot goes in or not does not determine whether a player was fouled. He was either fouled or he wasn't. Jokic makes shots on which he is arguably being fouled at a much higher rate than any player in the world. And so the other night when he actually missed, the officials didn't do what they usually do, especially for other stars. Well, he missed the shot. He must have been fouled. It's Nikola Jokic, for goodness sake. Right. Right. And he hardly ever misses a shot on which he is not fouled. And he's 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 almost seven feet tall and 270 pounds. The, the truth is that if you go back in history, you're – Shaquille O'Neal's, your Wilt Chamberlain, the, the big guys, the big guys. And I get it. Well, Wilt didn't want to get fouled. <laughs> but but I, I get that the Giannis. Neither did Shaq all the Giannis time. Giannis and Joel Embiid are the same height as Jokic. I get it. But they're yeah. kind of spindly, especially in NBC, kind of spindlier yeah. guys. Yeah, and, and he's so wheeling. When, when, and when and you throw your arms around, it, lo- it looks like more it looks like is he's going being on. Fouled all the time. And that has been a problem for big guys throughout the history of the league because. Uh, it's hard to move Jokic first and foremost. He makes all the shots, as you pointed out. Uh, so, yeah, I guess are you saying he's getting a, you know, he's not getting the whistle fairly? I would say, I suppose so. But is it that out of whack for big guys? No. It's just harder to see it. And the long, lanky Kevin Durant type bodies are always going to get more calls because when they flop or right. when they accentuate or when they whatever, it's arms and legs everywhere because they're almost seven feet tall. And referees, the dirty little secret in the NBA, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. You can ask people who also follow European soccer. They'll say the exact same problem. It's very hard to watch all of it at once. And so what you're really watching out for as an official at times is something out of the ordinary that happens that catches your attention. And then you try to reassemble what happens. Not shockingly, those are the two sports where flopping is the biggest problem. There was a time, and I'm not saying he flopped, but there was a time in Jokic's career where he did try to sell balls, and I'm not sure it worked in his favor. He doesn't do that anymore. No. And they still stiff him. And not, not only stiff him, if he has the urge much less often felt on the part of Jokic now than it used to be, but if he has the urge to complain... It's tweet, tweet, technical foul, and then the other night, right. toss him. And that's, where, that's where the problem is. technical, I, I have not seen, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I don't watch every game from start to finish. I have never, remember, seen a player, especially of his stature, get tossed after one technical. Yes. I, I, I remember in, in, in my day growing up watching the two biggest complainers were Rick Barry 
and Oscar Robertson, and I thought they both got away with murder. Murder. Oscar Robertson would come out publicly and say, and I, I don't know if there was an officiating golden age in the NBA, because I was a fan growing up, and I didn't like Mendy Rudolph when he made calls against the Knicks. And I remember uh, hearing one story about Mendy going into Madison Square Garden for a playoff game, and a regular fan who sat right on the baseline next to Mendy Rudolph quite often, who was not just a few feet away calling the game, say, Mendy, who's going to win tonight? And Rudolph's response was, the team that scores the most points, schmuck. <laughs> and later during that game, Mendy walked by the fan, and he's perspiring, right? Flicks with his thumb, sweat off his eyebrow that lands right on the fan. That used to be the way it was. Fans would go after officials, try to get into fights with them. Officials are so, so sensitive now. They're just sensitive little flowers. The game has never been more poorly officiated than it is now. And I'm not saying it's biased against a particular team or a particular player, but wow. Oscar Robertson and Rick Barry would complain all the time, and they hardly ever got teed up. And I like that. I mean, they're two of the great players of all time. I, I just two of I the have best a difficult time players who ever lived, arguably. That I'm not saying it was okay, and Jokic deserved his technical. I have a difficult time thinking that if Kevin Durant or LeBron James said the exact same thing, they're getting tossed. Yep, I just I agree. I don't see. I, it. I agree, and I I would and have argued that LeBron has learned about a way to talk to officials without getting teed up. But I'll tell you, there are times where he seems to be relentless and they just choose to ignore it. They ignore it. Nothing Jokic does or says ever seems to get ignored by officials who almost seem predetermined uh, to have predetermined that he's going to go tonight if he says anything to me. And it's these I, I, I don't know this official in question. That's the other thing. You used to know the officials. And, you know, it, the old saying, the best officials are the ones who aren't noticed. Right. Nonsense. The best officials are the ones who have reputations for being excellent officials based on the quality of their work. This guy who threw Jokic out the other night, I've never heard of him. Um, there's a picture in the post today of two officials, but the third official, the guy who threw him out is not pictured. So I, I, I was completely, I was watching a game with you the other night at our right. Christmas party mm-hmm. here locally. Yep. And like, what? what? <laughs> well, maybe gets a little more favorable at home, but it, of course it hasn't really affected the Nuggets. They've been two and zero when Jokic gets ejected and uh, they find themselves yeah. in a pretty good and place. Take a note of that. Although yeah. it helped that he got ejected against Detroit and Chicago. Uh, that, that helped. That doesn't it wasn't, hurt. wasn't exactly Boston and Milwaukee. Right. You know, where it would have made a difference. Nuggets take on the Nets tonight. We'll find out who's available for that. A couple game time decisions there. Jamal Murray and Aaron Gordon, of course. And uh, we'll break it all down for you tomorrow. But we'll turn our attention uh, not only to the Denver Broncos, but also to the passing of an NBA Hall of Famer that spent oh. some time in Denver. We'll tell you Good more guy. about it next on Miley Sports. What a field day for the heat. 
This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The NBA, unfortunately, loses one of their great Hall of Famers and a member of the Denver Nuggets for some time. The uh, brilliant George McGinnis, of course, played for the Nuggets for a, a little bit, but a, a person who has uh, had an extraordinary basketball career passed away at the age of 73. Uh, when you look at McGinnis's accomplishments uh, in Indiana, Mr. Basketball, of course, champion at Indiana University, two-time champion of the ABA, three-time All-Star in the ABA, three-time NBA All-Star, Hall of Famer, uh, an extraordinary career for uh, a player who was with the Pacers for much of his career, but ended up with the Nuggets uh, as well. And McGinnis, who is really kind of known as a bit of a uh, a gentle giant, really, um, it, it's it's a big loss to the basketball community and a big loss to the Nuggets community. Um, I, I must confess that in growing up, I did not watch nearly as much ABA basketball as I did NBA basketball. But because the Pacers won championships in 1972-73, um, the 71-72 season, 72-73 season, the Knicks were in the finals both those years and won a championship in 1973, as did the Pacers, and the difference was the Pacers made it two in a row, winning in 73. And I thought George McGinnis was just magnificent, and he and Roger Brown were two of my favorite ABA players. I didn't root for teams, but I saw these two guys, and I saw Connie Hawkins, who later came into the NBA after some uh, after two years, I think the first two years of the ABA, before he won his lawsuit and, and was allowed to jump to the NBA and play for the Phoenix Suns. And they, these are just players uh, that, that that I remember. And in uh, the documentary that George Carl's been a part of, the history of the ABA, it's a four-part uh, documentary. Uh, there's a lot of George McGinnis in there. I know that uh, to be a fact. Playoff MVP in 1973. Uh, he was the co-MVP. With Julius Irving two years later in 1975, and a 2017 uh, Hall of Famer, and passes away at the age of 73. But the one-handed game—I have never seen a person in my life with bigger hands than George McGinnis had. He could palm the basketball, and he played the one-handed game. It was almost kind of a globe-trotter game. Right. You see it now, you don't. And uh, the other story I remember about George McGinnis was that uh, when he was a Nugget. Uh, he had an unusual free-throw shooting routine, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Dan Essel had an interesting relationship, and they were often side-by-side in the foul lane awaiting free-throws to be shot. And uh, uh, Issel would talk to Kareem, and Kareem talked back to Issel, and they were kind of making fun of his free-throw shooting style, and it, it broke them both up. Uh, but George McGinnis... We didn't see George McGinnis in his prime here in no, Denver, but no. he was at the end of his career. Yeah, 1979, and 1980. thankfully, he was able to go back to the Pacers. Uh, he was traded by the 76ers to the Nuggets for Bobby Jones, essentially. And then he was traded back to the Pacers by the Nuggets for Alex, for Alex English. English. Right. Uh, a trade that worked out, obviously, a lot better for the Nuggets. And 
made up for Carl Shears having traded Bobby Jones for George McGinnis. Well, Carl Shear traded George, uh, traded Bobby Jones because he had a respiratory condition and couldn't play here. It wasn't safe for him to play at altitude anymore, at least not big minutes. He went to Philadelphia, became a six-man, six-man of the year at least once. Uh, but in any case, George McGinnis, next to Julius Serving, I thought Julius Serving and George McGinnis were the greatest players in the history of the ABA. Well, here's what Julius Serving said about McGinnis back when they were inducted into the And they were when, teammates yeah, later on with when, Philadelphia. When, uh, McGinnis was inducted into the Hall in 2017. Here's here's the quote from Julius Serving. He was built like Superman. Until LeBron came along, you never saw another guy that had George's physical abilities on a basketball court. I agree with that. That is special. George Gervin followed that up saying that locomotive, big, fierce, fast, and strong. Yep. Yep. Uh, He was all those things. And as you so aptly put it, a gentle giant. Um probably hurt him a little bit as a basketball player because he wasn't mean on mm-hmm. the court. Right. And in that sense, reminded me on, on a different scale, of course, of Wilt. If Wilt had had a mean bone in his body, he could have injured people who tried to block his shot. He could have broken arms on any number of occasions, but Wilt was a nice guy, and Wilt took a beating, but Wilt was not mean. Uh, I don't know that George McGinnis took the beating that Will took, but George McGinnis was as gentlemanly a player as you've ever seen and was was as graceful in it, but such a powerful body, was so graceful and, and so gifted. And the thing I always wondered about, he went to Indiana, and he played for two years in Indiana right before Bobby Knight got there. He, and I always have wondered how George McGinnis would have gotten along with Bob Knight and and vice versa. Uh, missed him by a year. Missed being with the Nuggets right before Doug Moe became the coach. I think Doug would have uh, enjoyed coaching George, um, certainly during his prime, because George could do – George couldn't sky the way Julius could. But George – George is an automatic 30-point – you talk about 30-point, 15- to 20-rebound guys. There aren't many of them in the history of basketball. He was one of them. The uh, he, he talked about it as Hall of Fame induction about you know it's hard to grow up in the state of Indiana and not fall in love with basketball. But had a, had a, a great quote there that gets an idea of, of the, the kind of person. So he talked about this as an induction back then. Uh, Indiana and Kentucky, the, sure. the, the state champions, they played each other in right. a two game series. That's, That's right. what they did. Yeah. Uh, he, he talked about it. The first game when when he was leaving before going to college, his final year in high school. Then the first game he had twenty three points and grabbed fourteen rebounds. Pretty solid for a high school player. Here's what McGinnis said at the time. I didn't think that was too bad, but one of the Kentucky players was not very impressed with the game I had, so I didn't want to leave a bad impression on him. The next week, he had 53 points and 30 boards. (laughs) (laughs) And presumably, that uh, player was suitably impressed. 53 and 30. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And and you're right, the the modern-day comparison. And they, they play a different game, but they're built very much. Julius is right. It's LeBron. It's LeBron. It's and LeBron. I mean, when you're talking about a guy like Julius Serving says specimen. there was Shizzle. not a guy between those two. No. That tells no, you no, an no. awful no, no, lot no, no, no. about the kind of no. player that no, George No, it went McGinnis from was. George McGinnis to LeBron James. Yeah. That was the evolutionary t- with a gap of, what, almost a quarter century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. McGinnis between be- the two. But that was the, the evolution of, of the game from a George McGinnis to a LeBron James. And- 
you know, LeBron played a brand of defense that because he was not particularly aggressive, George McGinnis never did. But George McGinnis was part of two championship teams. And listen, I, the Lakers of 72 were one of the great single season teams of all time. And they were better than Indiana. My Knicks in 73 were not necessarily a better team than those Indiana Pacers champions from 73 repeat champions in 73 if they had played a best of seven i'm not sure i could have in advance told you who was going to win i'd like to think the knicks would but i'm not sure because that was george mcginnis in his prime roger brown was closer to the end of his career but they had slick leonard as a coach and slick leonard was a great coach especially in the aba just just a wonderfully entertaining team and if you're taking the best teams in the aba through what the ten-year history of the mm-hmm. ABA, right? I think those Indiana teams are the best teams. Slick Leonard actually said, "I've seen everything that's come down the pike in sixty-plus years." Yep. Well, we're sitting here talking about one of the greatest power forwards that ever oh, played the game. The very definition of a power forward, George McGinnis. George McGinnis passes away at the age of seventy-three. Uh, the, the service will be private, but over at, uh, at at Gainsbridge, there will be a celebration of life uh, to be announced later. Obviously, a, a big moment for. All the folks in Indiana, as big an Indiana legend as there was, but oh. also an opportunity for Denver Nuggets fans who have gotten touched by a, a pretty special player at any point in his career. George McGinnis passes away at the age of 73. It's been a lot of fun talking with you today about everything going around in town. We talked about the Nuggets and the Avalanche and the Broncos and Mines, and that's what we do here. Thanks to Aaron Anderson for joining us to talk about some of those as well from Fox 31. Danny Bailey's the man, the booth that makes everything work. Thanks to you most of all for listening, whether it's on the FM, the HD, MileHighSports.com, or the free Mile High Sports app. You can just, you know, grab that. Like I said, free. You have one of those phones. I know you do. I mean, I, I know you do. Just go ahead and grab the app. You got all of it in your pocket, on demand, whenever you'd like. Sandy and I will be back in just around 22 hours, but you don't have to go anywhere. Stick around. It's Mile High Sports. But a big one.